0: Good afternoon and welcome to the Cambridge Film Show, broadcasting here on Cambridge 105, across the city and South Cambridgeshire. It's time now to lean back in your seat or your car or even your bed maybe and ensconce yourself in the opinions of our critics right here in the studio on this fortnight's releases, big and small, both in cinemas and on the streaming. I'm Emma Marchand, here in the host chair again, and joining me today are Victoria Eyre. Hello. Mark Walsh. Hello. And Simon West. Hello. It is a packed show today with a smorgasbord of films to tantalise the taste buds. Joel Kerr and Fly Solo were well with a little assistance from one William Shakespeare. In his unique, in his sorry, in his unique take on the Macbeth tragedy, Kenneth Branagh follows up Artemis Fowl with another trip to the Emerald Isle in the semi-autobiographical Belfast. We find out if the new scream has become anyone's favorite scary movie. Guillermo del Toro plays simultaneous homage to horror and film noir in his dark saga, or remake of Nightmare Alley, and we also check out George Clooney's warm-hearted star vehicle for Ben Affleck, The Tender Bar. But first, let's get stuck right in and follow Chef Andy through a real kitchen nightmare. Just tell him I'm so sorry. Um, I've just got so much
1: going on. Thanks for coming. Let's make some chips, yeah? Chop some spuds. Yes, sir. Enjoy your drinks. Thank you.
2: Service on table 20. I'm allergic to nuts. Better i pass that onto the kitchen.
1: Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> How's this? Well done. Keep that up. Keep turning, keep turning, keep turning. How long It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. Okay, look, we've been reviewed on table four. I need you to switch on, yeah? Look, I had no idea you were coming. It's, it's a bit bring. strong, isn't it, Bringing it along? This is your restaurant, this is my money. I haven't got it. I can't give you what I haven't got. What am I
2: Just slice three steaks. It's not hard.
0: Why do you always
1: give in to her, my man? What do you mean give in to
0: her? Following the acclaim of his short film of the same name, Boiling Point, director Philip Barantini brings us the story of Stephen Graham as chef Andy having one heck of a bad day. In one Bravura take, we watch Andy navigate his professional and personal nightmares in a shift which is wrought with supercilious health inspectors, double bookings, intolerant guests and mutinous kitchen staff. Mark, I'm going to start with you. A la Birdman and 1917. This film is being heavily discussed for its one-take mechanism, and this does really seem to be one truly one-take, not sort of fudged by digital trickery or, I think, an actual cut. I'm looking at you, 1917, for that one. For Boiling Point, is this gimmick or is it groundbreaking? And would it be worth it anyway?
3: Uh, I wouldn't say it's gimmick. Uh, I wouldn't say it's groundbreaking either. Uh, but i would say that it's effective i think actually it's what make the film work in the way that it does and uh, you know, I'm not quite sure why they decided to go down this particular route, but actually it does just help to build the intensity over the course of the film uh, and really draw you into that world so that when all the, the, the little dominoes that they've set up over the course of the 90 minutes start to, to drop and to knock each other over, that you really do get caught up in the incredible tension that must be people, felt by people working in that situation every single day.
0: Vicky, you're nodding wholeheartedly. Have you ever, have you worked in a kitchen yourself? Do you know people who have?
2: I feel like um, you don't specifically have to work in a kitchen; you just have to be familiar with that environment. Um, especially, just you know, day to day, you can be a waitress, especially, or like you can just be a server and know what goes behind those doors. And within the first few minutes, with the the health inspector coming in, you know what kind of day that is. It's a daunting thing, and for these continuously to go on throughout the movie, it's just relatable. You can, you honestly, if you worked in a restaurant, this film gives you so much anxiety, you understand Stephen Graham's reaction to all of this. It Yeah,
0: it does feel a little yeah. bit like a sort of real-time panic attack for yeah. all watching. Um, Simon, Stephen Graham isn't the only talent here under rigorous pressure. Were there any other highlights for you out of the supporting cast?
1: Uh, Vinette Robinson, who played his, I think, sous-chef, Carly, was absolutely fantastic, um, really grounded the film. Um, while watching this, one of the not a problem with the film was that i really hated every character in it apart from carly um the film on the set it was so anxious so so menacing i i did not necessarily enjoy watching this film but it was absolutely riveting from the start to the finish Mm. um but yeah, uh, like I said, Vinette net was just the stand out for me.
0: You say you hated every character in it, but early on in it, Hannah Walters, who I think is actually Stephen Graham's real-life wife, she plays the pastry chef, and there is this incredibly touching... And, and this film, I felt, was full of little insights. It doesn't... It's a 90-minute running time. It's very brisk. So it doesn't have to go or can go into great detail about these people's backstories, apart from maybe Andy, which you'd sense is not going to be a great... It's not going to be a great one for him. But there were just... Lots of touches where you could see glimpses of people's um, people's backstories and, and, and what was bringing them here and why they were there. Mark, what did you think? As as the film goes on, there is there is a sort of an actual storyline that comes into it that explains some of Andy's pressure. Did you think that that was well dealt with, or do you think in some ways it could have just been almost an hour and a half take of just a standard night as opposed to ladling in maybe some extra drama?
3: I mean, I think the the tricky thing to do with a film like this is to make sure that you're you're servicing a number of character arcs. Because if you're just trying to follow one character through that particular situation, it's never quite going to work. And I think what it does really effectively is takes you on the journey of Stephen Graham's central character, but also gives you insights into the other characters that surround that as well. And you feel you've learned something about each of them and their motivations and the reasons why they're putting themselves through that night after night by the end of it. Uh, so I think, yeah, in in that sense, it does work. Well, from a character point of view, I, I, I maybe would say that I think that the, the overall progression of Andy Psyche is maybe just a little rushed towards the end. I think we get build up, build up, build up lots of sort of third act in maybe the last sort of five minutes or so um, we're, we're, we're sort of dashing for the finishing line um, maybe of a feeling to try and keep the film as tight as possible um, but at the same time you know the film has done so much to build tension you don't want that tension to dissipate so I'm not sure how I'd see they could necessarily have done it differently uh, but you know it's a, it's not a great detriment to the film
0: No it's a wonderfully choreographed piece as well I mean to keep all of that going for, for 90 minutes and it, and keep up that brisk pace as well Vicky, did you feel as a story that it came together for you at the end?
2: Um, I was very happy with the conclusion. I don't think it could have, like you said, it was building tension. It, could have, it couldn't it could have ended without, like, a big finish. And then it just, it's a big finish, and then Sam Fender's vocals just come out of, like, a dark background. And I thought that was a perfect ending. Yeah, I was really, I just, it just related, like, that, the sadness you feel maybe that's a spoiler i'm very very sorry but the sadness you feel at the end towards like finishing the shift it's like you're exhausted and i really thought that 90 minutes was effective in that way you felt exhausted after watching this film in the best way possible
0: well this is very true we talk a lot on this on this show about long films and this was certainly short sharp and i thought really effective and i think we would all agree with that
1: yeah i mean it's a short film 90 minutes however i did feel more exhausted after watching this than some of the much longer films we've been seeing
0: well, it's a certificate. Boiling Point is a certificate 15. It's Screaming at the Light Cinema, and I think we've just found out they have actually putting more screenings on because this is proving to be a hit both critically and with, you know, with actual audiences. It's also available to rent on most, almost all home streaming services for £9.99 well spent if you've got more than one person watching it. So, moving on, by the pricking of our thumbs, something wicked this way comes by the pricking of my thumbs, something wicked this way comes. My husband, king that shall be. If we should fail. We fail. Didst thou not hear noise?
3: He thought I heard a voice cry, "Sleep no more."
0: Joel Cohen has moved away from Ethan, let's hope not permanently, to direct Denzel Washington and Mrs. Joel Cohen, Frances McDormand, as our tragic couple in this new grayscale adaption, adaptation of The Bards Macbeth. This morbid myth of mischief, murder and madness could be taking place in the past or the future or any time at all, to be honest, but the traditional Shakespearean language remains as the three witches and the forces of fate and a power-hungry wife lead Macbeth down the route of no return. Simon, Macbeth remains one of Shakespeare's most evergreen plays. It's still being studied nationwide for GCSEs. Is this esoteric and restrained, that's in my opinion, esoteric and restrained adaptation going to excite a new audience? Or will it speak only to those intimately familiar with the tale? Or in fact, maybe Coen Brothers fans who are just interested to see what Joel can do solo?
1: Um, I'm not a big fan of uh, Shakespeare in general. Um, I find some of the languages is quite hard to go th- through, and you just have to like pick up the story from osmosis. It's almost like watching a foreign language film without any subtitles. Um, however, if the film can get over the story without that, then obviously it's a success. And this is a success. Um, what I really felt about it is when I first saw the. I think it's produced by A24 who's done a lot of quite a lot of the horror films and um, like Hereditary and uh, The Lighthouse recently and one thing this film has in common with The Lighthouse is the, it's chosen a very narrow aspect ratio and it's all in black and white and on top of all the fantastic performances in the film it is absolutely gorgeous to look at so while I was watching it I to be honest I wasn't that bothered about What's the story like? Is the story good? Does it do a good job? You know, it is just beautiful to look at. The photography, um, the cinematography, the set design. It is just all amazing. A, f- a feast for the eyes.
0: Okay, Mark, Simon talked about how the, the you know, he he thought the whole cast was pretty much stand out. This is, obviously Macbeth is Denzel, Denzel, Denzel Washington and McDormans McDormand's real, you know, they are the key parts. I felt that... It, this was an interesting take on Macbeth because Denzel Washington seems pretty, he's pretty old to play the part, I would say, and he seems quite battle-weary from the beginning. Did this work for you? Do you felt that they would, they, could people talk the Shakespearean language correctly? Was there just, a, is there sometimes you can have that thing where you think that maybe people are just reading it out and not fully understanding it? What did you think of our Macbeth here in particular?
3: Uh, I'm going to have to say that as uh, somebody who wasn't uh, quite around when Shakespeare was first writing this, I know it looked quite on the old side, but uh, yeah, um, uh, I, I can't necessarily speak quite to that i i would compare to other previous adaptations my reference point i think i would agree with simon i i'm sometimes get a little bit lost in in direct shakespeare adaptations with the language uh i will confess i sat in the screening and i saw this in in london and uh, in the 10 minutes before the film started i did uh, google the plot of macbeth just so i had some context actually going into the film of what was likely to happen so you are really hooked on those lead performances to try to guide you through, uh, and I, I thought they were both great, but I do think they're not necessarily the best ever performances that I've seen in those roles. And I, I think probably, particularly with Denzel, I maybe feel he was almost a little too worn down at times. Uh, that uh, that you know, the weight of his on his shoulders you almost feel from minute one, um, and it doesn't feel like a progression of things developing as the plot. Unfolds. You you, do, you denied some sense of that character development in a little way, um, but that said, you know there's an awful lot to like about this film. Uh, you know it's incredibly stylish, incredibly well produced, uh, and you know e- even some of the smaller performances. You know you, you see the likes of of Ralph Ineson, uh, you know Finchie, uh, popping up for a tiny little cameo at the beginning, and uh, just just those smaller performances sometimes are the satisfying things uh, that, that keep you going through.
0: Yeah, I think Stephen Root as the porter as well was a great was was a great joy. I mean I studied this and I was. In this at school, I actually myself and Dudley Dursley from uh, Harry Potter share the same role. I was also Prince Malcolm when I played this in my all girl school and my twins are st- currently studying it. So we brought them downstairs to watch it and one of them loved it so much he's downloaded it now to kind of sit and watch it in conjunction. The other one, not so keen. But I would agree with you, Mark. I thought that Denzel was almost very passive from the beginning. It, it, and and I, I do think that, you know, Shakespeare, there are many readings of Macbeth and obviously a lot of times you can think it's Lady Macbeth who's dragged him all into this but really I think as a reading Macbeth himself knows what he wants and I was comparing it to both the Polanski version but of course the most recent big version was Justin Kurzel, the Australian directors Fassbender and Marion Cottiard. now that's much more blood soaked much more Traditional, if you like, Simon. Have you? Did you see that adaptation? I
1: did, and the only thing, to be honest, I can remember from that film was the absolutely gorgeous cinematography. Um, <laughs> you know, again, it's an absolutely stunningly beautiful film and worth watching for that. But the story, again, left me cold.
3: Uh, of course, the other thing to remember about that uh, that um, adaptation with, uh, with Fassbender and Cotillard, I just love saying Mara and Cotillard, uh, some of it filmed here in Cambridge, yeah. uh, the uh, the banquet scene filmed in the Lady Chapel at Ely Cathedral uh, and, uh, you know, I always, I geek out whenever we see a little bit of local uh, landscape uh, becoming part of the film, but actually uh, comparing the two, I did slightly prefer the uh, the Kurtzel version from seven years ago mm. um, and I think it was just the two central performances I just thought Fassbender and Cotillard
1: are a more effective pairing than Washington and McDormand, for my money. I've, I felt this one did occasionally feel like the greatest hits of Macbeth, with the scenes, where you're wait, waiting with the individual scenes, and the, you know, is this a dagger I see before me, how are they going to film that scene and all of that, whereas the Kurzel version was more of a coherent film from start to finish with the plot.
0: I won't lie. I got a bit, I was a bit confused as to who was who in this film. And I know Macbeth relatively well. So, and I got a bit confused between Ross, Macduff, Banquo. So I it, I don't, I, I, there's not a single exterior shot as far as I know in this film. It's all, and, and like we said, the palace sort of is it, almost like this massive kind of modernist sort of concrete mansion that that they're all living in and moving around. So the lighting was spectacular, but I felt quite, claustrophobic, and I think that's why I preferred the Kurzel version, because there's just more action. At the end of the day, Shakespeare was an entertainer for the people, and his films are, his histories, his his tragedies, his comedies, there's action in them, and I felt this was maybe a bit too inward looking. I'm not entirely sure why Joel Cohen has gone, went away from Ethan to make this, does anyone know any background of that? Is it just a passion project for him? It felt maybe a little guilty of being maybe a lockdown vanity project? I don't know. Is that, is that unfair? Uh,
1: Lockdown Vanity Project was the feeling I got from it. Um, one thing we haven't mentioned so far is actually uh, Catherine Hunter's performance as the Three Crones um, was the absolute standout and that is one thing that you will remember from this film. And I, I think it's that, that's where the real positives of the film
3: come because it's areas like that where it feels like Joel Cohen is trying to innovate with this adaptation rather than just trying to replicate maybe what others have done before. And so it's not just in the, the stark cinematography and the, the almost monochrome look of the film. To actually have those things which which work as different, takes different interpretations on the material, uh, I think, are what elevates it. It's it's when you get into those central characters where actually the film doesn't quite work as well, and, and that's, of course, what the film has to live or die on.
0: Yeah, you're right. So there was a freshness to it, but perhaps the central casting as i say i would maintain i think they are both a little it, it, it's it's a little on the old side for macbeth but it's certainly if you're a fan of shakespeare or if like me you're trying to encourage your children to take some kind of it's it, i think it's it's refreshing to see something so modern and so different being brought to the being brought to the screen That's the tragedy of Macbeth. It's a Certificate 15, although in terms of Macbeth, it's one of the less gory ones, I would say, by a long shot. And it's um, streaming now on Apple TV. You're listening to the Cambridge Film Show here on Cambridge 105 with myself, Emma Marchant and also Vicky Air, Mark Walsh and Simon West. We've still got the big cinema releases this week of Belfast and Nightmare Alley to come but first, 25 years after the first time let's ask the question what's your favourite scary movie? Hello? It's happening. Three attacks so far. Do you have a gun? I'm Sydney Prescott. Of course I have a gun. Something
1: about this one just feels different.
0: Samantha? I'm... I know who you are.
2: I've been through this a lot.
0: This is your life
2: now, which means that whoever this is is going to keep coming for you.
0: You ready? For this? Never. When the original Scream landed on our screens in 1996, it breathed new life into the slasher genre with inventive deaths, intensely meta-references and cameos galore. This is the fifth trip to Woodsboro, but it has been 11 years since the last one, so this has now just been rebooted simply as Scream. I kept wanting to call it Scream 5, but it is just Scream. From the opening scene, Ghostface is back to terrorise a new generation of teens who've been raised on artsy horror movies, shall we say, like The Babadook, maybe even Midsommar and the fight against him will then require help from our old some of our old friends Sydney Deputy Dewey and Gail Weathers David Arquette and Eve Campbell and Courtney Cox from the original Vicky yes. you are a huge fan of the original am I even allowed to mention your enormous love for Matthew it is Matthew Lillard isn't it is it its Matthew Lillard yes, yes I thought so how so you, you were obviously going into this with massive expectations mm. I should think how was it um
2: this really really lived up to my expectations um I I think, basically, Scream 5, it's like, I would say it is Scream 5 rather than Scream um, because it is a completely new take. The last time we were in Woodsboro is 2011 and things were done wrong with that because it brings back the original trio, but it, it doesn't quite fill out, it didn't fill out the characters, it didn't fill out the tropes like the originals did, but this one really gets it right with the casting, with the characters. And I think maybe we should do this spoiler-free. You get quite a big warning when you go and see Scream um, in the cinemas that basically no spoilers can be released online, but I want to build this up as much as possible to get people in the cinema to watch this reboot.
0: Excellent. Mark following scream itself like like we said sort of came as as, as a fresh new sarcastic look at the slash genre but then itself was then lampooned obviously in the scary movie series so coming back in 2022 is there still room for for the, are you still scared and amused by this kind of incredibly self-referential type of script
3: I think there is absolutely room for it, uh, and the film very sensibly acknowledges how horror has uh, developed in the intervening period since. The the opening sequence, uh, which again harks back to the, the single character on the phone to the killer, uh, makes reference to the likes of Hereditary, it follows the Babadook. Uh, so it, you know, it knows as a franchise that it has to remain aware of what horror is as a genre and how it's developed, uh, and it is then trying to move into that area. My biggest frustration with the film, I think, is that it still lets its characters sometimes do the things which it's condemning its characters for doing because they're doing it in horror films and all the characters should know these horror films and should know the things not to do uh, and it's almost as if there's a little switch on the back of someone's head and they and the switch just gets nicked off and all of a sudden they'll they'll go and wander out into the garden on their own or they'll go back into the room where they know the killer is on their own you know it, it, the film is dependent on people making those occasional lapses of judgment which it's tried to chastise its characters for doing right across the franchise And it does feel a little bit like trying to have its cake and eat it. And while I I fully support still trying to have something that that retains that original vibe of the Scream films, I just feel that it has to get to its crucial moments a little too cheaply.
0: Okay, but isn't... Sorry, I'll pick you up on that. I'll just ask ask you on that point. Isn't... That's part of the enjoyment of watching a film like this is that you're sitting cosily in the cinema safe in the knowledge that they're going to make ridiculous decisions and that's and then you're gonna get the jump scares and you're gonna get the murders. Is that I don't know, I'm not I'm not necessarily a huge slasher, slasher film fan, but that does seem that without that it's never gonna work. Or do you think that it should be cleverer than that?
3: Well I I, I think you can't really have your coconut in quite that way, of, of having the characters all go yes, we, we acknowledge that we've been watching this film for so long we know the things not to do, and then in a moment of crisis, all of a sudden we just revert to doing them. But actually, it's not just the moments of crisis, it's it's you know the the casual moments as well, where, where characters will do things. And I think for me as a viewer, the frustration is that because I, I then start expecting the film to do these things, it takes away the element of shock or surprise when somebody gets stabbed or or butchered or in some way... Cause I've kind of seen where the film is going it doesn't lack some of those surprises and I think back to Scream 2 in particular uh, and Randy's death spoiler for anyone who's not seen Scream 2 um, but that really genuinely felt like a pivotal moment in the franchise it showed that no one was safe but I also didn't feel I saw that coming and unfortunately in this film as much as I I really like what it's trying to do uh, at certain points it just felt a bit too predictable for me Fair enough.
0: Wes Craven died in 2015, Simon, so this is helmed jointly by relative newcomers Matt Bettinelli-Olpin and Tyler Gillett, although the script does have a, a, a credit to the original writer Kevin Williamson. Would you say, does it miss the expert hand of the old Horror maestro himself. Was no,
1: because they're not that little known. They did make Ready or Not, which was absolutely fantastic. Uh, new modern horror is that the one about Reaving,
0: the family with in the, the game, family
1: playing hide and seek, and if they're found, they get killed. Um, so I think they're almost you know a perfect set of safe hands to try and uh, try and move it forward. Um, they didn't try and replicate the um, necessarily the full. Films. They didn't pretend this is a screen film. It's like we are going to have to produce something a little bit new here and make and change it. Um, and one thing they did change up a little bit from the, at least the last couple is that it is an 18 certificate film. There is a gore in there. And for the first time in a while, probably since the first screen film, I actually felt scared and some of the scenes quite menacing um, which you don't normally feel there is a little bit of a slapstick element to Ghostface as a killer especially in the 234 and the amount of platforms he does and still does hit in this film so it's not completely taken out but I found a lot of the overall scenes were quite tense were well choreographed and well staged and, and it built up and it was a little bit more modern a little bit more gory and it was an update that this film needed and it's what made this film work
0: kind of yeah, you've you've taken my next play. I was gonna ask Vicky. We reviewed Halloween Kills relatively recently, which I went to I imagine this is better. But um we but that had a lot of quite inventive and I, I mean, to be honest, for me, Halloween Kills is just really all straight gore. Mm-hmm. So how inventive are the deaths in this? How gory is it? Will I be watching it through my fingers? I think uh, inventive
2: wise, there's some, there's some really good deaths. And I, you're going to be very happy with a certain one as a Tarantino fan, of um, especially. Uh, but uh, I don't think they need to be that inventive because the tension and the love that you build with these characters throughout
0: the film makes it heartbreaking enough. Definitely. And would you feel, because obviously there's a whole new raft of relatively young actors in this, the only name I really recognise from the new generation, if you like, is Jack Quaid being a huge boys fan. He's yeah. Huey in Huey and the Boys, obviously. Everyone loves, And I think Dylan Minnette in 13 Reasons Why. Yeah. So there's right. obviously, a, there's a, there's a, they've cast, again, they've mm. cast cleverly, I think. to bring Really in cleverly. They all fill out the tropes, like, so
2: well. Um, and that's what makes it better than maybe Scream For. I definitely think, like because they fill the tropes out, they make this group, they're so self-aware, and it really brings
0: you back... As a fan, like you want to see if this could even carry on as a new franchise. Asked, oh, do you think it really has? So, 11 years after we breathe mm-hmm. in new life, and it might be slightly, it might be a slightly shorter time before we see a new Scream. Last question mm. How do our stalwarts hold out from the originals? Ne- I mean, I haven't seen Neve Campbell in much other than the Scream films, to mm. be honest. Courtney Cox, obviously, we know very well for friends, not doing that much else. David Arquette, also haven't seen him much for a while. How is it bringing them back?
3: I think it's, you know, you, you actually feel you're comfortable seeing those characters again, you know, and whenever we've had any of these franchise reboots, whether it be Star Wars or Ghostbusters, and and people come back and play a role they've not played in 20 years, you want to feel that they still know how to inhabit those characters. Uh, And I do feel that, you know, that that they are very reasonable depictions uh, from the three main leads of actually how... You would expect them to be 20 years on. You still get that absolute defiance from Nev Campbell as Sydney. Uh, you still get the the regardless journalism of, of Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, uh, and you get that that continually worn down aspect of uh, David Arquette's Dewey. Uh, you know. He actually, I think, is the one of the three I would almost want to spend the most time with because he feels he's got the most rounded character. Mm-hmm. The other two are slight ciphers because they've always needed to be because that's what the film's demanded them to be. Um, and he's the one that gets the chance to to just try and add a little bit of colour. But yeah, I, I, you know, as a fan of the franchise, who's seen all four of the previous films, who absolutely loved uh, certainly the first two, it's been nice to revisit these characters, to have them brought back into this world in a way that feels organic. But yeah, as a film overall didn't quite work for me.
0: But if you're Simon, get truly scared by it as well. So that is Scream, or Scream 5, if you wish to call it that. It's showing at all... No, it's showing at the... It's showing at the... Pic, sorry, it's showing at the view and the light in Cambridge, and it is a Certificate 18.
1: Cambridge 105 Radio.
0: On Monday evening, join DJ Kuriakin for two hours of Roots, Reggae, Dancehall and Lovers Rock
1: it's called painting on silence the album and it's the Uppercut band collaborating with a variety of artists you've also got people like glenn washington on there carol thompson luciano and others uh, you'll definitely be hearing more from that
0: revelation time monday night at nine on cambridge 105 radio
1: yeah so just keep it luck
0: listen live on radio player
1: just your average night
3: fraser's upstairs gaming online with his mates Sophie's streaming her favorite tunes in her bedroom. Mum's downloading the latest drama box set. And Dad's liking kitten videos on his phone. But this isn't your average night. Thanks to City Fiber's full fiber network, everyone's gaming, streaming, and scrolling at breakneck speed. Join Cambridge's Gigabit Revolution today. Head to Cityfiber.com/slash Cambridge105.
1: CKLG Accountants are a friendly team of accountants and tax advisors with big firm expertise.
3: I'm Lawrence, Director of CKLG responsible for business services. We understand that running a successful business brings many challenges. Our experienced business services team provide a bespoke service and offer professional advice at every stage of your business journey, allowing you the freedom to focus more on what you do best.
1: To find out more, call us on Cambridge eight one zero one hundred to arrange an initial chat with one of our specialists or
0: visit our website cklg.co.uk
3: CKLG Accountants your
1: partner in business, your partner in life
0: Cambridge 105 Radio Right, we're going to be finishing off with a couple of big cinema releases but for now let's stick with the streaming choice and we're going to take a little trip back to Long Island in 1973 Ah, oh, here we go well, I'm on my way
3: hey whose kid is that my sister which sister is a hot one crazy one what do you want to die <laughs> okay two rules i'm never gonna let you in and i'm
1: gonna always tell you the truth your father is a i'll take care of you teach you the male sciences i saw you in the yard playing sports you're not very good I'm gonna find some other activities i like to read you read enough of those maybe You could become a writer. One more thing, very important. Never hit a woman, even if she stabs you with scissors.
0: Got it. George Clooney has made his return to behind the camera with his adaptation of the 2005 memoir by J.R. Moringa, The Tender Bar. It tells the story of his own childhood, raised in his grandfather's house by his single mother, with little contact with his radio DJ father who's walked out known only as The Voice. So the young JR seeks solace in Dickens Bar, run by his Uncle Charlie, a mid-career best Ben Affleck with a lot of awards buzz coming his way, and frequented by fairly drunken yet very well-meaning substitute fathers. Simon, I know you didn't see it, but this, similarly to Hillbilly Eulogy, tells the story of a prodigy kind of overcoming his impoverished background to end up at the Ivy League school, living his literary dreams, in this case becoming a Pulitzer Prize winner. Is this really enough drama to build a film around, or is it just a little bit like... Sm- <laughs> there's smug there's certainly walk. a lot of
1: navel-gazing in this film, and you do <laughs> wonder why anybody would think this story is necessarily unique enough or different enough to make a memoir out of unless they are just trying to say oh here's a universal experience in which case it's not universal experience for anyone who didn't make it to Yale Um, the problem with this kind of film is it's constantly flipping back between two timelines Um, there's Ty Sheridan playing the senior JR as he goes to college and makes his way through Yale and also Daniel Ranieri as a young JR uh, looking back at his life growing up um, and there is a vast difference in quality between the two halves. The standout of this film, and the main reason to watch it, is Ben Affleck. Um, shockingly, for some people, he is the heart of this film as Uncle Charlie, um, the page, the uh, bartender and uh, uncle, as, as the name suggests. Uh, <laughs> Giving out wisdom to young Daniel to let, uh, give him all the things he needs to do to get through to the world, which you know is quite cruel and to him and help him get by. It's not a showy performance, people have been a lot of Oscar buzz. I've seen he got nominated a few awards for Best Supporting Actor, um, It's one of the things it just seemed to be a genuine laid back, you know, vastly bigger role, which has just got enough wit and all of that, and the performance and charisma and when it, yeah he's on screen it's the film's fantastic when he's off screen you yeah kind of checking your watch.
0: Yeah, I would agree. He really breathes life into this film and I kept being reminded of his character in Good Will Hunting and I almost could think that this could be an older version. version yeah. But in this, instead of having Matt Damon as his math prodigy friend when he's like, I hope I turn up one day and you're not there, he's saying the same thing to his nephew in that like, you know, I hope one day you're not going to be coming out and hanging at my bar anymore. But it's done with wit and warmth and I forget what a kind of almost larger than live screen presence Ben Affleck is. You know, mm. he is a tall actor, he's a big actor, he's got that Big old kind of craggy mountain face. And he really, he wears it so well in this. Um, He is, of course, surrounded by some pretty top-notch supporting actors, perhaps, with Ty Sheridan, who I'm very fond of in Ready Ready Player One, Lily Rabe playing the single mother, Ben Affleck's sister, and also Christopher Lloyd. But did you feel, Simon, that they were all slightly... Over, you know, over overwhelmed. Did any of them really have any impact? I normally really like Lily Ray, but I just felt she was sorely underwritten.
1: Uh, I think, that, yeah, the character of the mother was a little bit underwritten. I'm sure she has a lot more and probably a more interesting life story um, than Jr. Um, Christopher Lloyd was. Fantastic, because it's Chris Lloyd and he always is. And it had some really touching moments when he's a really craggy grandfather who doesn't really like people who want anyone out there. And there's the scene where he, he has to switch and go out there, and it's actually quite touching.
0: That was a, yeah, uh, yeah.
1: Um, you know, one, probably one of the highlights of the film. Um,
0: For sure, because we you've got to uh, remember Max Martini, who plays the the deadbeat dad, who turns out to not just be deadbeat, but really actively unpleasant. And yeah. there is a. There is a scene which I found quite effective when Ty Sheridan playing JR because he's actually junior, and this is the whole thing that upsets him he's junior to a man he's never known and he has no respect for, so that's why he's re established himself as JR rather than junior. I don't, we, we, they don't even credit. Max Martini, who plays his father, they don't even credit his name in it. They just call him the voice in the credits, which I think is a really key thing because as far as, I guess, is concerned, who's gone on to great things. We were just discussing this before the show, weren't we? Andre Agassi handpicked him to write his very well-established autobiography, as has Prince Harry, if anyone's interested in reading that next year. Moringa will be reading Prince. We'll be writing Prince Harry's memoirs. So he's done incredibly well. But we talked last, last show about licorice pizza and about... Um, Directs of a certain age now making these bathed in nostalgia films of their own childhood. Now, this is this starts in 1973 and the, the credits was one of the prettiest bits. They're all on this beach. The substitute dads, Charlie, the young JR. And it is just shot through this kind of, you know, lens of, of 70s Polaroids almost. Should we really be expecting a little bit more from George Clooney, though, Simon?
1: I would expect a lot more from George Clooney. I mean, it's one of Is the he, ones where... Should
0: he, he, he the the Midnight... should he raise the bar? you seen what I did there? Should he raise the
1: bar? I mean, he recently made The Midnight Sky, which I don't think a lot of people saw, which I think may still be available on Netflix in the middle of the pandemic, and that came out, and that was great. He's, you know, good night and good luck. He's just, re, you know, rewritten... I heard one of the famous directors apparently quit directing after watching Good Night and Good Luck recently. Um, saying
0: there was nothing, there's, saying, there's, nothing, else it, there's nothing
1: else for me to do. There's nothing else for me to do, which is, you know, high praise. And, but, you know, he also made The Descendants. But this, I don't know, it, it's the, like I said, the choice of the story is just so beige, a lot of it. You just don't see what necessarily attracted him to it. It felt like, as you're we saying, it's like It it's all the people who like pl- reading Pulitzer Prize winning books
0: and well, I, mean, I, I mean I would say I quite like writing Pulitzer Prize reading Pulitzer Prize-winning books the only reason I would watch this would be for Ben Affleck yeah like he'll be a G. there's a certain sense and I think you, you messaged this on our group you know there's a certain sense of like wow 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 poor me I get to go to Yale I get to date an incredibly hot girl but maybe her parents are a bit mean to me because I'm a bit poor but it doesn't matter because I'm still you know acing yeah. all my classes and everything's going great for me and my uncle's just really given me the most amazing convertible car it, it yeah, it's hard to find the drama it's or like the sympathy. Oprah, why, you
1: know? <laughs> it, it, yeah, it's hard to sympathise yeah. with main character. It's all, like I said, it's Ben Affleck show.
0: Yeah, and and that and for that and that reason alone, I would say it's, it is worth watching. And I, that comes from someone who's not necessarily a huge Ben Affleck fan. This may, maybe this is a J Lo effect, but he certainly seems to be moving into his late middle age. And if he keeps, keeps doing performances like this and warmth like this, I am. 100% here for it. This is the Tender Bar. It's the Certificate 15, I believe, and it's streaming on Amazon Prime. This is the Cambridge Film Show you're listening to on Cambridge 105. We are going to be wrapping up with Nightmare Alley, but for now let's dock beneath the cranes of Harland and Wolf and tread carefully and definitely very good-lookingly very attractively down the streets of Belfast. We all have a story to tell. But what makes each one different is not how the story ends, but rather the place where it begins.
1: Can you it?
0: Do you think me and that girl have a future? Well, why the heck not?
1: You know, she's a Catholic. Can you call me her? Yes! You know who you are. Your buddy from Belfast. Where everybody knows you. So the whole family excited for you. Be good, son. If you can't be good, be careful. careful. And that thought will keep you safe. We're looking to cleanse the community. You wouldn't want to be the old man out in this street. You touch my family and I'll kill you.
0: Inspired by the youth of the thespian himself, Sir Kenneth Branagh has brought us the study of, uh, sorry, the story of Buddy. The study of Buddy. The story of Buddy, played by newcomer Jude Hill, as he navigates the violent streets of Northern Ireland in the 1960s, trying to relate to the world through his family, which is played by a host of Irish and British talent. The troubles are starting. The family's finances are balancing on a thread, and there is talk of emigration. Mark. From Shakespeare to Poirot, from Cinderella to Jack Ryan, from Marvel's Thor to exactly what Artemis Fowl was, Branagh has certainly turned chameleon behind the camera this past decade. Was Belfast for you a return to form, perhaps after the disappointment of Artemis Fowl, or was it just something brand new for you?
3: I, I wouldn't necessarily say it, it feels brand new in any sense but it does feel very personal to Kenneth Branagh and I think it certainly suggests itself as being the the post-Disney film you know you can see the influence of Thor and Cinderella not necessarily in the filmmaking style but where Kenneth Branagh has I think actually tried to work out what an audience is looking for in a film you know it, it feels a a, a populist film in the same way that something like The Full Monty feels a, a populist film but I love The Full Monty and I love Belfast uh, and I make no apologies for that um, I, I also think it gets into the question of how genuine an experience this film is uh, and I've seen an awful lot of debate on social media about how authentic the d- depiction of Belfast at the time is ranging from people who say it's given them PTSD because it's brought back so effectively the situation in The Troubles at the time to people feeling it is as fake a, as it could possibly be And I cannot speak to that because, again, uh, not quite old enough to have lived in the troubles in Northern Ireland. But I do feel it's an authentic representation of what Kenneth Branagh felt he was going through as he was growing up as a child. And it's through those childlike eyes that we see the whole film uh, and a film that unfolds in a difficult situation uh, and brings us almost unbridled joy at times.
0: Vicky, you could say a couple of years ago, Taika Waititi towed a, a similar line between historical tra- tragedy and his coming of age exuberance in Jojo Rabbit. With this, yeah, I mean, this incessantly upbeat 60s soundtrack um, and the perspective of this innocent child. Does the film balance, is it trying to make it, you know, its message with its sensitive subject matter tactfully and well? I think uh, it's... Extremely well-balanced,
2: actually. I went into this not really wanting to watch it, and I had a very... Um, within the first five minutes, um, I think uh, it just it happens very fast. You get put into the situation, the location, as soon as you can of what is really going on and what is starting in Belfast at the time. And... Uh, like you mentioned Jojo Rabbit um taking you through the childlike eyes I think the similarities are there but I think they have I think this holds its own I don't think it can. it should be compared because the lightness that Taika Waititi went in with Jojo Rabbit and the funniness I don't think he takes I don't think Kenneth Branagh takes too this is a joke too much this is very much it's lighthearted and it's it's family. Fr- it's family. Fr- it's a family film, I would say. But he doesn't take the mick out of anything, which maybe Taika Waititi kind of did with that with Jojo.
0: I think you're. I think it is yeah. a much well, obviously because Taika Waititi was not making a film about his childhood, no. whereas this is very much Kenneth mm. Branner's Yeah, Kenneth Branagh's love letter in a way to the Belfast mm. that he that he grew up with, and particularly to his parents, Simon he didn't cast himself in this Kenneth but he has stuffed it with acting tannel to the gunnels I think this is the ninth time or twelfth time he's worked with Judy Dench for example Kieran Hines was his grandparents and he's cast Jamie Dornan and Katrina Balf as his parents I'm not gonna lie these are two of the most glamorous people working in film today and they are styled as such as well Katrina Balf, for a impoverished housewife in 1960s Belfast has a fine line in you know Queen's Gambit style shifts with legs that go on for years and you Know arm day arm day day arm day days arm day arms every day. I found myself slightly distanced to believe in the reality of this family with, and that's harsh for me because I like both of these as actors. But it just, I found it hard to believe it when it, they were surrounded by such glamour. I found it hard to sympathise with perhaps the family's worries. How about you?
1: Um, it did feel like the film was definitely shot and cast with rose tinted glasses. Um, I mean, the good thing about it is Catriona uh, Belf and Jamie Dornan did seem to have a lot of chemistry on screen together. Um, so it did make them feel a believable family. And he did think, you did kind of want them to stay together, despite the fact he was constantly travelling out uh, overseas and why she st- stuck around when things weren't quite going as well. Um, who wouldn't want Kieran Hines and Judy Dench as her grandparents? Um, it's, like I said, the whole film is just... It has this sheen of fake rose-tinted glasses where you want the best of everything. You just want to remember all the good bits, all the bad bits and that. Most most of it is like, you know, toned down, taken out. Um, And, you know, because as a child, you don't understand those points.
0: Mm. Mark, this is Unusually for 2022, our second black and white film that we're reviewing this week. Do you think there was any reason for that? Um, you may have actually done slightly more research than me today. There may be a reason. Kenneth Banning may have said what his reasons are for it. it. I don't know. Well, do-
1: it is. Kenneth Banning says, I remember the 60s in black and white was apparently what he has said about the film. It's just literally how he remember those times. Probably because he was watching TV in black and white all that time and that, that, that was it.
0: Okay. For an audience in 2022, do you think that black and white works or again, is it just something that makes it stand out from the crowd to give it a kind of weight that perhaps it wouldn't have if it was in colour.
3: I, I have seen certain people saying that the film is trying to gain more weight than it deserves by doing that, uh, in particular comparing it to Roma, uh, which you know is, is, has a similar sense of telling that kind of family story in a particular time and space in the past and by doing it in black and white. Uh, And I don't think people are making those comparisons particularly favourably when all's said and done. Um, But actually, what this film is doing, which Roma isn't, uh, is the contrast between the black and white and those moments of colour. Whenever the film shows the true moments of escapism, you get a bit of Star Trek on the telly, or they go to the theatre, they go to see Chitty Chitty Bang Bang at the cinema, those bits are in colour. And it's what actually gives you the sense of the childlike innocence and and Buddy Jude Hill being pulled out of the troubles of this world, the literal troubles that he's living through, uh, and having that chance to still grow up and develop and, and see things. Uh, you I know, almost wish at certain points, because at one point he sat on the curbside reading the Thor comic book. I think that is still black and white. I would have loved some digital artist to just have coloured in that comic book. I think that would have just really sort of completed the set for me. Um, but again, there's, there's lots of moments that, that Branner. Uh, pays homage to other films, you know. When when they sat in the cinema watching, it's almost a direct lift from Cinema Paradiso. You know, there, there's lots of references and callbacks to the way we see other children experiencing those things in films. And the question is, is it is it cheap copy or is it actually Brana? talking about his own development in that sense and uh, and becoming a filmmaker. And I'm willing to give it the benefit of the doubt in that sense. Uh, you know, I think it is a piece of entertainment rather than a serious critique of the times, and it just works so effectively on that basis.
0: That's very generous of you. I felt very differently about this. For an hour and 40 minutes, I felt I'd been trapped in some kind of space-time continuum because it felt like it went on forever. I, I don't know why I wasn't as drawn into this I would be. Vicky, you mentioned the beginning, and I did think the beginning is very striking. I do think that first scene is very, very well done. But after that, it just lost... I wasn't engaged. I didn't really... I couldn't... I wasn't particularly sympathetic. I wasn't engaged. I didn't feel like I care enough, maybe, about Kenneth Branagh's Black and Black childhood to watch to watch an hour and 40 minutes about it. But it's been it's obviously up for a lot of awards do you think it's going to get award love this year
2: yeah this is an award winning uh,
0: this is a season it's going to be an award favourite and I think it's going to do well for
2: a long time Um, it's definitely a Cambridge film I think this will do very well in the area itself and I just want to shout out one more time to the, the grandparents of this film I think I wasn't, I was, if I wasn't one over within the first five minutes, Judy Dench especially, they kept me there, the family bond was there, and I think this is a great film to watch as a collective family.
0: Well, maybe I will try that
2: out.
3: Uh, just really quickly, I would say that I, I think as a group of reviewers, sometimes we get to our end-of-year show and give out our own awards of best films, and feel films like Knives Out and Dune, which have been our, our top films of the year, are sometimes films that we all, or, or most of us, like, but no-one really loves. I would expect to see Belfast in our top two or three at the end of the year for the oh. exact same reason.
0: Ah, uh, well, we'll wait. Well, oh my goodness, that's that's an excitement <laughs> leading up from February to you know to December. Who knows? I really was was extremely underwhelmed, but people are loving it. It's a certificate 12A. It's, being, it's screening at all Cambridge cinemas, as we always say, go and make your own mind up. So to wrap up the show, we are going to check out Guillermo del Toro's star-studded follow-up to the Oscar-winning The Shape of Water.
2: I will ask
3: you simple questions. You will answer in short sentences only what you believe to be absolute truth.
2: Absolute truth. I
3: can do that. Now,
0: brief as you can, what is your name? Stanton Carlisle. Are you a true medium? Yes, I am. Mr. Carlisle? Doctor
3: about
2: that.
0: Please lie down.
2: Can you read minds? Yes, I can, under the right circumstances. Keep your answers brief. What do I want?
0: To be found out, same as everybody else. Are you in contact with the beyond? Well, we've had our share of snake charmers in the past. We deal with them. Mexican director Del Toro's first feature in five years is an adaptation of William Lindsay Gresham's pulp 1946 novel Nightmare Alley, which was then turned into a Tyrone Power starring film in 1947. It's set in a strange world of the American travelling shows of the 20s and 30s with hints of the grotesque, the supernatural and maybe even the occult. Bradley Cooper plays Stan Carlyle, a man with a past in typical noir style, who finds himself a place in the circus and even with his own hit mind-reading act. But when he meets Kate Blanchett, psychoanalyst Lilith, Lilith Ritter things do get messy for him Vicky, del Toro has really gone full gothic noir in this film, as we said it's a remake of the 1947 version is it a successful mix?
2: Um, I think I need to start this off by saying this film is absolutely beautiful to watch um, for its runtime, it is. it also came out of nowhere I haven't heard any hype about this, it's just kind of appeared on the schedules and if I urge anything from the show, I think even considering the runtime, this is a beautiful film, and I'm so happy he's back. I really am.
0: <laughs> back in town, Guillermo yeah. del Toro. Is it, yeah, Simon? Is it perhaps too bleak though to be a, a big box office hit? Is this feel good, in any way, shape or form? I mean, I don't know the original. I haven't read the book, and I haven't it's, seen the original. But no, I.
1: It's a noir film. Noir mm-hmm. films aren't supposed to be feel good. It's gothic noir, but what it is is as vicky said it's absolutely beautiful um the performances from bradley cooper and kate blanchett everything about this is top notch um it's a nice grindhousey story but you you think is it going to be a cult is it not you don't know you're not quite sure it's just got that feel to put you on edge um it's it is a long film it is i think it's about two and a half hours but i i could not take my eyes off the screen. Um, and even I had, had a little bit too much to drink beforehand, um, tea, but <laughs> you know, it's like, have I got time to have to the toilet? You know, it's like, no, I cannot miss a moment of this. You just have to sit and watch it because um, you never know what's going to happen.
2: Something that really helps the runtime, just looking at the cast of all of these people now, um, it's astounding the people he's chosen and he's chosen them well. Um, the characters, are even take Willem Defer as an example. He has a very small amount of screen time, but he fills it so and Bradley Cooper, I forgot how good of an actor he is. And I think it's because he plays successful so well. Like it take Limitless as an example. And like this is him on like top form, I would say, with a powerhouse trio of women. Um Clay Blanchett, Tony Collette and Rooney Mara, just so
0: good to see them in this space that they completely dominate. Well, you've also got actors that I think yeah, del Toro likes to work with, like Richard Jenkins, like Ron Perlman, obviously, who was his original Hellboy, which is still one of my favourite films of that era coming, you know, so and, and Mary Steenburgen and David Strathairn. So these are names that are so far down the cast list of actors who can make, you know, who can really make a film. And to see Richard Jenkins and Mary Steenburgen together just makes me think of um, Step Brothers, but I take it they're not married in this one with <laughs> <laughs> Sadly. Um so, like, well, that was it was good. My question is Does he wrangle all these stars very well? But clearly, from the sounds of things, this really is the, the, this incredibly starry cast is well said. You say about Bradley Cooper, we watched an episode of Sex and City last night from Yonks ago, and he popped up in it. I completely forgot, and he pops up as a random sort of date for Sarah Jessica Parker back in the early noughties. But this is following on his last, you know, he's been doing Rocket Raccoon. He did that awesome cameo in Licorice Pizza. Mm-hmm. But also, it comes off the back of obviously his directing himself in A Star Is Born. So, do you think he is really becoming one of the finest actors of his generation. This is the
1: best role I have seen him in for a while. Yeah, um, a lot of
2: people have said he's miscast. I think he plays a man that is successful that you want to like bad things to happen to really well. Like this is a role that was made for him. Yeah, you want the grief to be shown on screen at Bradley Cooper.
1: <laughs> yeah, from the beginning of the film, he's not successful, which is the thing. He is completely lost. He's had a um, you know breakdown of the family. You know he's damaged and it's a typical. 40s noir kind of way and he brings that across so well and his transformation from the beginning to the end throughout the film is believable um you know what he's thinking you know what he's going through um yeah, he's you know absolutely riveting.
0: And is there the sort of body horror or the grotesque horror that Guillermo del Toro is perhaps well known for?
1: There are a few moments of horror um, in this, but it's not a full-on horror film. It is mainly psychological. Um, there's think... a lot about mesmerism and spiritualism, but they say it's all fake at the beginning. and show you exactly how and why and what everything happened. and so it's just one of the twists. So it's like you know, all these grifters and hucksters are just going up against each other, and it's it's all of that. It's only the one or two moments
0: of.
2: Del Toro's definitely had fun with the props in this. I think that's his thing. He loves to insert things that he's passionate about and build stories around them. And mentioning horror and a carnival, he really really engages with that in, in his fun way.
0: Fabulous. So that's, yeah, that's a great review from you. It only opened yesterday, and it's a Certificate 15. It's showing at the Light, the View, and the picture house. So that's it for this week. Stay tuned, but come back in two weeks for more reviews and opinions from us. Until then, have a great Saturday. Goodbye from all of us. We're going to play out with a little bit of Paul Simon, which you might have heard in the Tender Bar trailer, which actually has a great soundtrack.